Well, good evening, everyone, and it is good to have you all with us this evening. And I'll just go on and start off by saying I think everybody in here has known me either since I was born or at least since I was like four or five, maybe. So it is an honor to be able to, to be here this evening to speak the Word of God to you. And every time I have the opportunity to be in your presence, it is, it is nice to, to be here. So thank you again so much. And I know that the first night of the gospel meeting when Jim was preaching went off excellently. From what I understand, last night went well. Uh, and so I hope tonight that we can also benefit from opening up the word of God together. Well, we live in a culture that becomes more and more detached from God with every passing day. We live in a society where gay and transgender is the new norm, where false views of sexuality are around us, where pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry, where abortion is promoted by many in our own government, and where the promotion of drugs and alcohol is rampant. But we've been commissioned as Christians to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But how can we be effective when we live in a society that continually rejects truth? When we live in a society that glamorizes the forbidden, that depends solely on human wisdom for decisions, that systematically continues to remove God from every facet of our nation. These are real issues that all of us have to overcome if we are to spread the gospel message the way Jesus Christ intended us to. Now this same problem, preaching the gospel in a seemingly godless culture, this really isn't anything new. In fact, Paul faced the same types of cultures, the same types of people in his day. In fact, Paul was actually face-to-face with the same people who crucified Christ. He was among those who persecuted Christians. He himself was persecuted. He traveled among people who rejected the one true God, who pursued the worship of idols. All in all, Paul lived during a time that were full of men and women who rejected Christ. But that did not stop Paul from preaching the gospel, did it? Now, a great example of this can be seen in Acts chapter 17. And I invite you to open up your Bibles there right now to Acts chapter 17. And there we're going to be examining verses 16 through 34, where Paul is preaching to the Athenians. And I want us to take a look at how Paul dealt with this type of godless culture, what he did to teach the gospel to them despite their godliness. Because there's a lot that we can learn from him that we can apply in our day-to-day lives as we go out and proclaim the gospel message to others. Well, let's go on and begin there in in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Verse 16 of Acts 17, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now Paul was in Athens, if you remember, because he was forced to leave Thessalonica. He was forced to leave Berea because what was he doing there? He was preaching the gospel. The Jews got angry at him, and they forced him out. And so now he finds himself in Athens waiting for for Timothy and Silas. And what does he do? He goes into the synagogues and preaches. 
But the, before we get there, let's think about Athens. What do you remember about Athens? Well, Athens was the heart of Greek culture, of Greek intellect. It was known for its art, for its architecture, for its intellectual status. Some of the most well-known philosophers like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle resided there. Athens was also well-known for its countless number of pagan temples, temples where they would go and worship and offer sacrifices to false gods. They were known for their numerous man-made idols of, of gold and silver and stone that could be seen throughout the cities, statues that were made to honor Zeus and Hermes, Aphrodites. The pagan writer Petronius once said this about Athens. He said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That goes to show just how full of idolatry this place was. And the scriptures say, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so his conscience was troubled because the city was devoted to this. There was a lack of the one true God. And what does Paul say about idols? What does he say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, he actually touches on this a little bit. In verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So what Paul is seeing here is demonic in his eyes. This is not from God. This is not what God wanted. And this idolatry bothered Paul so much that it propelled him to preach about the one true God. And so in verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so the first thing Paul does is something that he's well accustomed to doing. And that's going in and preaching in the synagogues, reasoning with the Jews and the devout persons. Now, devout persons there most likely in this case means God-fearing Gentiles. And so that would be someone like Cornelius, as you would see in Acts chapter 10. And so Paul goes into these synagogues and he preaches Jesus Christ. These are people who feared the true God, but they didn't have an understanding of the gospel. They needed to be taught Jesus Christ. So Paul went there first. But understand that these people in Athens were a minority. But it says he also did what? It says that he went out into the marketplace and spoke to whoever happened to be there. Now this broadened the audience for Paul, didn't it? This broadened the audience to people who had no idea who God was. People whose lives have been spent worshiping pagan gods making sacrifices to pagan gods, worshiping in these false temples, these polytheistic rituals and ideas. And it says that he reasoned with them. Now, what does reason mean? Well, the best explanation that I could come across was that reasoning with somebody is patient persuasion. It's not forcing the message onto somebody, cramming it down their throat. Instead, it's lovingly explaining and showing them why it's true. In fact, we see Paul do this earlier in chapter 17 in verses 2 and 3 when he's teaching at Thessalonica. 
In verse 2 of chapter 17, it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so Paul made an effort not to just talk about the gospel, not to just talk about Jesus, but to explain, to patiently prove and explain and back up what he has to say, to reason with them. And so that's something that we need to keep in mind as we go out and talk to others, is that we need to have that patient persuasion, that reasoning attitude like Paul did. Well, in the marketplace, Paul came across some Epicureans and Stoics. Now, these are the two main groups that Paul is going to be preaching to later in the chapter. So what I want to do is just spend a couple minutes briefly explaining who these people are so we understand who exactly Paul is talking to. Now, in verse 18, it says, Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, Epicureanism and Stoicism were two of the main philosophies in Athens at this period of time. They they were philosophies that sought to relate to the common man, unlike the philosophies of Aristotle or Plato that came before. Now, Epicureans, one of their main goals was to eliminate unnecessary fears, such as death and punishment from the gods, so that they could live pleasurable and tranquil lives. They said, if we can get rid of these fears, the, the fear of death, the fear of punishment by gods, then we can live, uh, try to obtain peaceful and tranquil lives. They were very tangible and materialistic in their views of the universe and little focus on the spiritual realm. In fact, they believed that the soul was made up of matter. And so when the body died, so too did the soul. And so in other words, the Epicureans didn't really believe in immortality. They didn't really believe in a life after death. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, they were more spiritual because they were pantheists. They believed that the soul was immortal. They believed in the afterlife. Now, pantheism, I was having a hard time putting it into words, but I found a really concise explanation that I think would benefit us in understanding who these Stoics were. Pantheism is the view that God, and for these people, that would be most likely Zeus, okay, So it's the view that God is everything and everyone, and that everyone and everything is God. Pantheism is similar to polytheism, the belief in many gods, but goes beyond polytheism to teach that everything is God. A tree is God. A rock is God. An animal is God. The sky is God. The sun is God. You are God, etc. And so the idea isn't that God created everything, and that we can see God's presence in everything. It's that everything is God. So it's a very uh, unique view of of God and his relationship to the universe. And because everything is interconnected like that, the Stoics believe that when things happen in this life, there's nothing you can do. It's, It's the natural cause, and you just need to be okay with that. And they wanted to to promote that, says if you can be okay with it, then that will bring you peace. So both philosophies strive to bring peace, but in two different ways. And a famous Stoic explains that by saying, don't demand that things happen as you wish, but wish that they happen as they do happen, and you will go on well. 
And so that is their goal, to bring peace and fulfillment in that way. So one was a physical philosophy, one was a spiritual philosophy, but they both missed the mark. And so these were popular ideas, the popular teachings that the Athenians were familiar with during Paul's uh, time there. And so while these philosophers were talking to Paul, some said, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so understand that these are the most educated, elite men in Athens at this time. Yet they were clueless as to what Paul's message really was. And so in the midst of their idolatry, they have no concept of the true God of Israel, of the true God of Christianity. And this just goes to prove that education and intellectual status does not equate to truth. It does not matter how smart you are, how much you think you know, that does not mean you know truth. And that is seen in these philosophers. And they called him a babbler. And that's an insult. Because what babbler actually means in this context is pick up seeds. That's what it goes back to, pick up seeds. So what they are saying was Paul was somebody who pecks at ideas, like a bird pecks at seeds, but he spits them out without fully understanding them. To them, it just sounded goofy. It sounded like they didn't know what he was talking about, like there was something maybe a little off with them. But they were still intrigued, because look what happens in verse 19. It says, And they, brought, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, which is the, the place where the magistrates and the courts of Athens met, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the philosophers were still interested to hear in what Paul had to say because that was just what people did there. Part of being an Athenian, part of living there, one of their hobbies was just continual education. And so any new idea that came along, they wanted to learn more about it. So they invite Paul to the Areopagus, and they give him a platform to present his message. And it's this message that I really want to focus on this evening, how Paul preaches the gospel to a godless culture. And it's important that we understand it because we are on a path that is leading to the same situation as the Athenians. And when I say that we're on a path... I'm saying that we're not there yet. We're close, but we're not there yet. And the reason I say we're not there yet is because in America, we at least still have the presence of God. We have the idea of God in our society. In fact, most people at least have a general concept of God, of who he is. God is revered in our declaration of independence. We recognize our submission to God in the Pledge of Allegiance. In God we trust is written on all of our currency. And still, to this day, 20 million Bibles a year are sold in the U.S. Just about every American household has the Word of God in it. And so, in a sense, God is not foreign to us. But the fact of the matter is, as time goes on, we are continually, slowly separating ourselves from God. We are becoming a godless culture, just like the Athenians. People are constantly being offended. They're constantly wanting to replace the one true God with idols, not of gold or silver or stone in our society, but of 
Money, assets, fame, popularity, sports, relationships, you name it. We're filling these idols in our lives. We're trying to constantly weed him out and censor God in our society. Now remember who Paul was talking to. The Epicureans and the Stoics. These educated elite philosophers who had a great impact on the beliefs and understanding of that society. Well, who has a great impact on the beliefs and ideas of our society? Well, I would say the educated presidents and professors of universities all across our nation. Now, before I go any farther, I want to make sure that you understand I'm going to make some points about some things that are going on in universities and in schools across our nation. But understand, I am not bashing education. I am a product of public schools. I am a product of of the university, and I'm thankful for that. Education in the proper context is a good thing given by God, okay? So I am not at all bashing education. But there are some things going on that we need to be aware of. Because these institutions play a major role in the thinking and the worldview of their graduates. And we need to be on guard against unbiblical, anti-God teaching that may occur there. There's an ongoing effort to censor God in the classroom. For example, intelligent design is the teaching that claims the universe was created intelligently, with form and with purpose. And for Christians, we would have that intelligent designer... That intelligent designer would be God. That's how Christians would understand it. Well, Ball State University has recently announced that intelligent design will no longer even be discussed as an option in any of their science classes. The president of Ball State University said, to allow intelligent design to be presented to science students as a valid scientific theory would violate the academic integrity of the course as it would fail to accurately represent the consensus of science scholars. So in other words, even teaching the possibility that there is an intelligent designer is off the table because the scientific community doesn't agree. They don't say that that's right. So it's off the table. It's not allowed in the classroom. And understand that this is not just an isolated incident. I vividly recall at least two professors in my university experience that would mock Christianity, that would mock intelligent design openly. It's something that is allowed almost and to a point that it's nearly accepted. It's common, and it's having an effect on college graduates. Listen to this. The number of college graduates who profess Christianity, and I understand there may be a misdefinition of what that Christianity may be, but the number of college graduates who profess Christianity has dropped from 73% to 64% since 2007. Over eight years, the number of college graduates who profess Christianity has dropped from 73% to 64%. And it's not just occurring in universities, but even elementary, middle, and high schools are continuing to strip away God. And this trend for censorship really picked up steam in the 60s when prayer was officially banned from public school. But let me give you some recent examples. An 18-year-old named Michael Hamby found himself in legal trouble when he referenced Jesus Christ in his graduation speech. In fact, 
He thanked Jesus. He thanked God for giving him his abilities, for giving him the opportunity to learn. Well, he was accused of civil disobedience. And attorneys for the school said that he was supposed to be a representative example of the success of the school's own educational mission. In other words, he's supposed to give the praise and the glory to the school, not to God. Not to God. Here's another example. At a Memphis elementary school, a class was given an assignment to create a diagram and to describe their idol. Well, a 10-year-old girl turned in her colorful diagram and it said, God is my idol. I will never hate him. He will always be the number one person I look up to. The girl turned in her assignment and she was told by her teacher that she's not allowed to write about God and she needs to go home and redo it so she can get credit for her assignment. These things are happening. They're going on and we need to be aware of it. We need to be on guard against it. And it's not just the name of God that's being removed, but even the concepts and the principles of Christianity are being suppressed. Teachers and staff across the nation are not permitted to promote religion at all in the classroom. And it's not illegal to teach intelligent design or creationism as long as you don't put a religious context on it, but it's highly, highly looked down upon. And the number of schools that actually do teach it pale in comparison that teach solely Darwinism or evolution. Atheist organizations, such as the American Humanist Association, are acknowledging high school students who help promote secularism, the secular movement, in the classroom. An atheist group recently sent a letter to a Florida high school demanding that the phrase, God bless America, keep us safe, stop being said at the end of the morning announcements. The principal of that school received that letter. The same day, he wrote back and said, we'll stop immediately. (laughs) The removal of God from our society isn't just affecting education, though, is it? It's affecting the American household. Christians, Americans who claim to be Christians, has dropped from 78.4% to 70.6% in eight years. In eight years, 78.4 to 70.6%. The Pew Research Center says that nearly one out of every four Americans are religiously unaffiliated. That means they consider themselves atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Almost one in four Americans. While the name of God continues to disappear in the home, look at what it's doing to the family. 35% of kids in America are being raised in a single-parent home. The majority of that 35% live without a father. That number has doubled since 1960. And research has proven that children who grow up without a father in their lives are more prone to get in trouble socially with the law. They're more prone to have, have trouble learning. There's so many things that happen to a child when there's not a father in their lives, when they're not living in a biblical home. Only 46% of children live in a home with both parents who are in their first marriage. Less than 50% of kids 
live in what we would consider a traditional family. Listen to this. 41% of children are born outside of marriage. 41% of children are born outside of marriage. That was 5% in 1960. The trend has got to stop. The removal of God from our lives is just putting us on the fast track to sheer godlessness. Putting us on the fast track to being like the Athenian culture. The more we remove God, the more our society continues to crumble. So how do we combat the issue? How do we preach the gospel to a society that is abandoning God and forgetting who he is? Well, let's see how Paul does it. Let's see how Paul addresses this godless culture as he preaches on Mars Hill. In verse 22 of our text, let's go on and read his entire address. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So that's Paul's address to an arrogant, puffed up, godless audience who think they know everything there is to know about life in the spiritual realm. And don't we sometimes find ourselves talking to the same types of people? And this can be a challenge, but in Paul's address, he shows us three important elements that we can use and we must use when presenting the gospel to the godless. And the first thing that he does is he tells them that God is. That there is a God. He tells them who God is, and he tells them what God says. And let's talk about that first point. Tell them that God is. He does this in verses 22 and 23 of our text. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now understand that when he calls them religious, that is not a compliment. He's simply pointing out the fact that he's able to observe from their idols that they have an interest in the spiritual realm, that they themselves have a desire to worship. And so a statement like this really points out the fact that all of us have an innate desire to worship. All of us are innately religious. We all strive to worship something, whether it's God or whether it's someone or something else. All humans dedicate their lives to something, whether it's jobs, family, hobbies, money, ourselves, laziness. We all strive to fill a void with something in our lives. You know, it's oftentimes been said that UK basketball is like a religion. Now, why is that? Because the, fe- the people who follow UK basketball are dedicated to it. They're dedicated and devoted to the mission of the program. They're emotionally invested in it. To some people, it acts as a religion. And so all of us, in a sense, are innately religious. We naturally desire to worship something. And the Athenians here are no different. And so Paul could see all the false objects of their worship and that they had in their lives. And they knew that they needed to know who God is. They needed to know that God existed. And he says that as he was passing through, he observed objects of your worship. It said that he found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now it's probable that Athens actually had many altars that had an inscription like that on it to the unknown God. And this implies that they actually worshipped so many gods, it was impossible for them to know them all. So they would just set up altars to the unknown God, gods they hadn't even known or they didn't discover, if you will. So God, however, created us with the ability to recognize that there is one God, that he is in existence, that he is worthy of our worship, that he is an intelligent being. When it comes to recognizing the one true God, man is without excuse. In fact, he's revealed himself to us in all that he has created. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. When you walk outside, when you look up at the sky, whether day or night, God is declaring himself to you. He's revealing himself to you. God's handiwork is right before your eyes. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Everything that has been created proclaims God's power, proclaims God's wisdom. It's for us to see. It's for us to recognize. Man is without excuse when it comes to recognizing an intelligent designer, a God. We are without excuse because God has revealed himself in absolutely everything that he has created. Think about the most breathtaking scene you've ever witnessed. Maybe it's the ocean, or maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon, 
or maybe Yellowstone National Park, or you've seen a beautiful sunrise or sunset. When you see that, you are seeing God's creation. You are seeing God's power and God's wisdom. These ways, these are just ways God uses to communicate with us. We are created with the ability to understand that. And if a person is completely honest with themselves and has a pure heart, they can come to no other conclusion than that he is there. He is there. But because of sin, so many people choose to suppress that truth and they worship anything and everything other than God. And this was true for the Athenians and it's true for countless numbers of people today. And so what Paul is saying in verses 22 and 23 is there is one God and I'm going to tell you the truth about him. And we need to be willing and ready to do the same thing. Well, the second thing Paul does is he tells them who God is. He tells them that, excuse me, he tells them that God is the creator. He tells them that, that the Athenians were supposed to be, understand, the most intellectual, enlightened people on the planet at that time. The fact that Paul was having to explain the basics of Christianity to them proved that man's wisdom is truly fallible and flawed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the idea here isn't that God is foolish or that God is weak, but it's saying even if he were, you still would pale in comparison to him. Human beings pale in comparison to the almighty God. But our society does not understand that, do they? Because man is always trying to use his wisdom to solve problems, whether economic, social, political, personal. The fact that our culture thinks it's too intelligent to believe in a God proves that they really have no idea who God is, who he is at all. And so how do we explain who God is? How do we explain them to a godless culture? Well, the first thing we, Paul does is he explains that God is the creator. In verse 24 at the beginning, it says, God made the world and everything in it. He's the creator. We will confront people who tell us that everything in creation evolved over billions of years with no rhyme and no reason. But we have to make it clear that no, there is another option. The only option. The only explanation is that creation came from God. It's where life originated. So that's the first thing Paul points out in explaining who God is. The second thing Paul points out is that God is the ruler. The second part of verse 24. He says, He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by man. As the creator, God has the right to rule over his handiwork. He's not confined or bound to any structure that man may make. He can't be compartmentalized. Nothing can house God because God holds everything in the palm of his hand and he has the right to rule and have dominion over it. Well, the third thing that Paul points out in explaining who God is is that God is the giver. In verse 25, it says, He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
As the creator of everything, there's absolutely nothing that we can give God in return that would benefit him. There's nothing. But yet God continues to give to us life and breath and everything. Matthew chapter 6 tells us that we're greater than the birds of the air. We're greater than the lilies of the field. He provides for us. He is the giver. Paul points out that God is the controller in verse 26. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place. And so he tells them, listen, from one man, from Adam, came humanity and all the nations. And as difficult as this may be to communicate to a non-believer, it's important that we let them know that God is ultimately the one in control. All that's happening in this life is either divinely appointed or God is allowing it to happen. Regardless, God is the one overseeing and he is the one who ultimately is in control. And the last thing that Paul points out in explaining who God is, is that God is the revealer. In verses 27 through 29, he says, Men should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, I just want to stop real quick and just make a small point. What Paul's doing there, he's actually quoting their own poets. He's quoting something that they're familiar with. Not necessarily scripture, but something they're familiar with, and he's using that to tie it into God. So we need to maybe utilize that ourselves. Get on someone else's level. Utilize something that they can understand when teaching God. But in verse 29 it says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul here says that God has revealed himself. He's not very far from any of us. He's revealed himself. And by creating and ruling and giving and controlling, we can see that. We can see that revelation. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For his, as we read earlier, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God is the revealer. He has revealed himself to us. Well, after Paul explained who God was, he then went on to explain what God says in verses 30 and 31. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul tells them what God says by telling them that, listen, God has been patient, but there will come a day when God will judge the earth. And because of this, Paul's telling them that, listen, you have got to repent. You've got to turn away from these false gods. You've got to turn away from this polytheistic mindset. You've got to turn to the one true God who can bring about salvation. And he says, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And that him there is Jesus Christ. Paul is preaching Jesus Christ to these people. And this assurance that he speaks about, it could mean 
One, that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can be assured that God will return. Or it could also mean that everyone has an assurance of hope if they believe and respond to the gospel message. Whatever view of the assurance there you want to take, it's a right view. It's a good view. Regardless, Paul says, listen, you've got to repent. You all need to repent. And so up to this point, Paul has addressed a culture that is so steeped in idolatry, but yet he has successfully laid the foundation of the gospel message. He's told them that there is one true God, that he exists. He's told them that God is the author, the creator, the sustainer of life, that he commands all men to repent because there will be a day in which the earth is judged through his son, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. That is the essential foundation of Christianity, and Paul laid it right before this godless society. And had the people lit him, seems like they were interrupted, but had the people lit him, he could have gone on to explain the significance of Jesus' death, the significance of the resurrection, the importance of approaching the Father through Christ and becoming a child of his. Paul has taught us how to boldly communicate the gospel to an audience that is completely disconnected from God. Okay, so what? He he talked to this audience, well, what was their reaction? What did they say about their godless culture? They probably didn't care, right? Well, what was their response? Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So there seemed to be some interruption The sermon stopped, and some just flat out mocked him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there were three responses to Paul's message to these people. There were those who flat out completely rejected him. I said, listen, this is crazy. I don't like what you have to say. I don't want any part of it. That's part of preaching the gospel. That's the sad truth that there will be people who are not receptive at all, that will mock and walk away. That's something we have to deal with. That's something Paul had to deal with. It will not ever change. But there were also those who wanted to hear more. The door had been cracked open a little bit. They were interested. They wanted to hear a little bit more about this Jesus. Who is this God? Paul had planted a seed in their hearts. And we too can come across people. We can plant seeds in their hearts, cultivate and hopefully nurture so that they will become Christians as well. Then there are those who immediately believed. They recognized the error. They recognized their lack of God in their lives. They understood and saw the truth because Paul reasoned with them. He reasoned and explained. They saw the truth. They instantly saw it, and they wanted to follow. And so all three of these responses are the same that we get today. Now understand that we have been commissioned to spread the gospel to all men. But sometimes we let this godless culture that we live in intimidate us. We're not certain how to effectively 
communicate the gospel. We feel like we may not be intelligent enough to communicate the message that God wants us to. But understand that Paul confronted one of the most idolatrous, puffed-up societies that man has ever known. And he was able to reach them. He was able to reach people who had open hearts. And he did this by simply reasoning and pointing out the existence of God, who God is, and what God's message is to mankind. And so this message is as applicable today as it was in the days of Paul. And for as long as life continues, Christians everywhere will be surrounded by cultures that try to push away God, that detach themselves from God. And it's our responsibility to be ready and willing to preach these people the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, it is my prayer that we will all stand strong, that we'll all be bold in the midst of the idolatry, in the midst of the sin that surround us, and that we will confidently communicate the word of God using the same tactics that Paul did. Well, if you're here this evening and you are not a Christian, there is a God. He exists. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of the world. This God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live among man, to teach man. And this Jesus Christ took on the burden of sin as he was hung on the cross as a sacrifice for you and me. He was buried and he arose on the third day. He was resurrected and ascended into heaven where he will return to judge the earth. That is the message. That is the gospel message. We can preach it. If you're not a Christian and you've heard this message for the first time, now is a wonderful opportunity to to become a Christian, to become a follower of His, to be baptized into the body of Christ. Or maybe you are a Christian and maybe you have veered off the path some. Maybe you're not as strong in your faith as you once were. Let us pray for you this evening. Let us help you as brothers and sisters in Christ to lift you up. If there's anything that we can do for you tonight, please come forward as together we stand and as we sing.